Sophia Butler's amazing. Since reading this one, I've read all her short stories in The Blood Child, and I started reading Parable of the Sower, but that was a bit too reminiscent of lockdown. Hello once again, I'm Gillian Knight, and welcome to Art Fictions, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. In this podcast, I discuss an artist's practice through the lens of fiction, usually a book chosen by my guest. I'm keen to open up access to art by bouncing between books, the artwork, and most importantly, the ideas shared between the two. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with the very talented Grace Woodcock. She joins us from her holiday on the southwest coast of England to discuss Mind of My Mind by the renowned and somewhat underrated sci-fi author Octavia Butler, who I first discovered through artist and Black Art founding member Keith Piper. Aside from the book, we talk a lot about Grace's debut solo exhibition, Gut Brain, which is currently at Caster's new gallery space in South East London, with a neighbouring show by Latvian artist Indrikas Gelsis. It's worth noting that as you listen to this podcast, you'll understand that Grace's research concerns stretch far wider than her work to date, making listening relevant even if her exhibition is over. At Caster, it's amazing to have a space that is so flexible. And I think especially after lockdown where everybody's been viewing things on viewing rooms, so it's nice to give people a real place. Grace Woodcock is a young and upcoming sculptor, someone who's bound to hit the must-watch lists in the next few years. Her curiosity is inspiring as she infiltrates medical and scientific developments to think about cultural optimism, what it is to be a human body, to be enhanced, to be physically manipulated, and the unconfident boundaries between the ethical and the dangerous. Grace creates works which embrace both a concoction of activity going on underneath our skin and how our bodies might connect, or rather disconnect, with their manufactured environments. Her exhibition Gut Brain, with its nostalgia for a beginning of new times, is well placed for what now feels like the miserable end of times, between the B word, the C word, the startling chasm between income groups, excessive pollution, unsustainable meat production, unethical mass farming practices... Oh. Oh, sorry about that. You can check out Grace's work on her website, gracewoodcock.com, or at caster.gallery. And I'd like to extend a warm thanks to you for listening. Let's begin. Hello, Grace Woodcock. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us today on Art Fictions. Thanks for having me. Hello to Cornwall. Hi, Gillian. (laughs) You've chosen... Mind of My Mind by Octavia Butler. So I'm going to do a quick pricey of the book. Doro is an immortal breeder and leader of telepathic humans who, for 4,000 years, has been attempting to develop a super race. In order to survive, he has moved the essence of himself from body to body across genders and races. Finally, he breeds a daughter called Mary. She is of slight build, young, poor and mixed race. The wider world is brutal, and Mary herself has been on the receiving end of an unfair amount of blows from her mother's many partners. Still, she's an exceptional telepath in whom Doro has enormous faith. In her teens, Mary goes through a transition from latent to active telepath, creating the first pattern by connecting with other telepaths. Mary then begins developing a community of followers by transitioning them and connecting them with the pattern. 
This improves their lives and she mentally feeds from them. It is also the first time that actives are able to live together without killing one another, though they are still unable to care for their own children. Doro decides to force Mary to stop building her empire and acquiring more telepaths. A battle ensues which Mary wins, killing Doro by drawing on the strength of her people. Despite about 150 of the 1,500 dying in the process, most survive and she is able to protect them so her community can continue to grow. The end. By the way, I loved the book. I'm so pleased that you loved it. You gave a brilliant recap, but I'm not sure I would read the book if somebody told me what it was about. But it's so exciting the whole way through. It's a book that covers a lot of ground, but I'm just fascinated by the kind of image that I have in my head of the pattern connecting these different minds. And I guess the kind of power struggles, because when Mary transitions to become an active and she just has this connection to seven of Doro's most favourite actives around the country and she pulls them in in a way that they feel like they have no choice about it and they have to come close to her. And she can just really easily drip into their mind, like a kind of prosthetic connection. And she can read all of their thoughts and experience everything that they've ever been through without them even knowing that she's doing it necessarily. And they can't connect back unless she lowers a shield. And the way the pattern's described as golden threads to each of the minds. And then as each of the other latents are brought through, there's like a glimmering strand that gets stronger and stronger. So when you say that if somebody described the book to you, you wouldn't necessarily read the book, what, what do you mean by that? I guess I've only been into sci-fi the last three years and I'm a very slow reader, so I haven't read that much. And before I was very dismissive of the whole genre. Now when I read sci-fi, I tend to pick books which I know will have technology or machines or be like completely in another world. And this book is not like that. It's set in a world that could be exactly as it is now, just with more X-Men type characters. Unless it had been recommended to me, I'm not sure I would have read it. So it's kind of opened up the world for you? Yes. I mean, Octavia Butler's amazing. Since reading this one, I've read all her short stories in The Blood Child. And I started reading Parable of the Sower, but that was a bit too reminiscent of lockdown. So I've put it to rest until we're more in a normal life. It got a bit heavy. Ah, uh, okay. I thought it was incredible. I've read that The Wild Seed, which is part of the Patterner series, is also pretty amazing. Oh, I'll have to give it a go. I love the patternists. Why is this not a, a movie? I'm not sure if it would be so good as a movie. I think that's why I find this book so interesting, because it deals with a lot of things that I have a kind of mental picture that I couldn't fully form. The imagery in the book is so strong, but this idea of being in some, inside someone's mind and seeing that connection draw out is something you can kind of imagine without fully shaping it almost in a way of like the work that I've been making imagining the insides of the body but almost in a way that's not illustrative because it it's not like a visual that we normally have so I'm not sure that it would work I think you'd lose a lot of the best bits of the book by it being a film and I'm not sure how they could do all the latents 
before their transition and they just have horrible mental noise where they pick up the absolute worst experiences of other people that are happening to them and they kind of jump into those bodies and whatever they're doing at the time is overtaken by this horrible traumatic event of somebody being in a car crash or burnt or anything and it's like they are that person and then they get back into their own reality. I'm not sure how they could do that in a film without it being really hammy. Yeah, I think you could do it as a film as long as you kept it much more about the action of what happens. Because I didn't particularly find Octavia Butler, you know, very preoccupied with prose or anything. She's preoccupied with what's actually happening, what the action is. And there's meaning through that action. So you wouldn't necessarily have to make a film just of that book. You could take the best parts of the whole series, perhaps. I think you're right. I think it's so interesting how she is very preoccupied by action and it's all first person. There's no background. Everything that we learn about, we learn about through one of the character's eyes. And that jumps around chapter to chapter is always from another perspective. Yeah, everything is so in the present. In fact, it's quite interesting what you were saying about time because when I first looked up reviews of the book, it said it was set in the 70s. I mean, it was written in the 70s. And what I understand had happened was that Octavia Butler, besides the fact that she sounds amazing and the fact that she died so young is really, really sad. Well, actually, for you, 58 is probably not really young. But for me, it's really young. Very young for creative output, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she hadn't finished, of course, as well. She wasn't given a chance to do full novels for a long time. She was doing a lot of short stories in newspapers and magazines, wasn't she? I wonder if she became something of a victim of her own invention because... She was just such a seminal writer and she got terrible writer's block and she couldn't finish the Parable series. So apparently she saw this sci-fi film, which is actually a British film in 1954 called Devil Girl from Mars. And Devil Girl from Mars was this woman, Naya, who was a mind-controlling female alien commander sent from Mars to acquire human males to replace the declining male population of Mars following a war of the sexes and thereby saving the Martians from extinction. And this film had a male triumph in the end. Classic 50s sci-fi. Well, the thing was, this was post-war, where a lot of women, of course, had to work and had lived without men and had realised, oh, funnily enough, despite our breasts we can actually cope and we can actually do stuff and we can actually work and we can actually run factories. And so, of course, there's all this tension between the genders. So this film, it says that the male population is just killed off in Mars and then this alien comes down to Earth to get these males. Mind you, she only gets one and then he outwits her. All you need is one man, right? One man, many womb. Oh no, 50s sci-fi is terrible. I um, think I mentioned to you Forbidden Planet, which is this film where there's a space crew's gone and had a look at a planet and they they never came back. 
so they send this group of perfect male specimen astronauts kind of to the forbidden planet and the only people that are there is this father who's a scientist and the one child that was born on the planet who's a woman and she's incredibly sexualized but has like no experience of the world and everybody else died and all of the perfect specimens just make pass at her constantly the whole way through the film and they're like oh on earth we kiss everyone (laughs) absolutely awful that's so hideous kind of goes along with it because she's like well I've never been to earth so I don't know and they're all like well also boys will be boys and well they've been away from women for a long time so who could blame them all of these lines are like used through the film it's quite hard to watch but um great film from a kind of design and sci-fi machine like relic of a world with a different species but it's a very rapey sexist film nice Hmm. Anyway, what I was going to say about The Devil from Mars was that Octavia thought that was rubbish as well. And what year was Forbidden Planet? 57, I think. Oh, okay. So she probably would have seen that film as well. She thought that sci-fi films were rubbish, but she blew up this capacity for a sci-fi film to include so much and... One of the lovely lines that I found when I was doing a bit of research on the book, written by two critics after she died, they were talking about her association with Afrofuturism, which was this idea of speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture. And some people, I think quite rightly, said she's actually morphed beyond that, quite like her character Mary in the book, I thought, where despite the fact that Octavia Butler does have a sort of Afrocentric sensibility at the core of her narrative. She also has an insistence on hybridity beyond the point of discomfort. And I want to keep coming back to that because I thought there was something of that in your work and there's something of that in the artists that you have mentioned to me that are influential to you. Anyway, hybridity that exceeds the tenets of both black cultural nationalism and of white-dominated liberal pluralism. In other words, because of this character Doro, who is a total shapeshifter across genders, across different races, she's able to transcend the sort of cultural or race argument to some sort of all-encompassing race do you know what I mean and Mary does that as well definitely yeah and I, th- I thought that was really interesting as well I mean there are elements where they do discuss racism like some of the original telepaths that get brought into the pattern at the beginning really don't like being controlled by a black woman and she does just transcend it but a new life kind of sets in when the telepaths they are the race that is important and the way that they talk about the non-telepaths kind of just takes a move in that direction almost like Gattaca yeah 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 love that life exists beyond any racism or sexism but there's a real privilege of certain genetics and that's the new normal in Gattaca 
you're right, there's a sort of elitism in the breeding program, which is quite like this, you know, that you get people that are bred for different roles. But in the book, I got a bit lost on how they decided who to include and exclude. I don't think that they had any choice if they were included. The first latent that she brings through is one of the telepath's brothers, and he's supposed to be telepathic. That's like what he was bred to do. But as he came through, he became telekinetic and he can fly. And if he doesn't have a connection to other people's minds, his strand of the pattern, as soon as he comes through transition, is gone. So he's excluded, but he's very happy about it. But otherwise excluded, I think some of the people that they brought through towards the end, it really speeds up, so there's not as much depth. But I think that some of the some of the latents that get drawn in and come through transition, they can't be controlled, and they are too dangerous, and so they kill them. And I think Mary can kill them with a thought. She can just kind of consume their mind and take completely take them over, take all of their energy out. And this is when they start being like, oh, wow, you're just a female Doro. But you're like whole package because she has the mental connection and she can take from them. But the way that Doro just, if anybody even went to hurt him, he would just jump into their body. So they'd die instantly. And he let, the whole experiment go on so long because it was exactly what he wanted to happen and he was kind of so fascinated by it but he was just furious because he couldn't take any part in it because he he is not telepathic apart from when he takes a body and when he takes a body then he has all their thoughts and experiences. I listened to it on Audible. I mean it's just such a different experience and in the prologue, the woman's accent, because she has this thick American accent, I thought that she was saying Dora instead of Doro, D-O-R-O. So I thought the character was female from the beginning. And then you get into the first chapter and you realise the character is male. And Doro, as a name, is actually from the female Greek, meaning gift of God. So straight away, before we've talked about Doro moving bodies, because his body is mortal, but his essence is not mortal, I have this idea of shape-shifting. But then when he has Mary, and Mary takes over, and Mary is essentially completely successful, this is what he's always wanted. And then, because both of these ideas are put forward, I'm not sure whether he wants to stop Mary in her breeding program because now that she's actually had a physical son, she should be kept safe until her son is able to take over as leader or because he's jealous of her success. What sense did you get? I thought it was because he was jealous of the next generation. Yeah, so I just read it like completely bitter and he didn't want her to keep going because she was taking all of his best latents from around the world and it would ruin all of his breeding systems that he set up for such a long time to get to the point where he got Mary. And I think he was worried about where he would start again if he kills Mary. He was just, um, it was exactly what he wanted, but he just couldn't have power over it. So he was emasculated. Yeah, yeah, he didn't own her. And I don't think we can do it justice, but that as a concept I thought was completely fascinating because Doro is, it's mentioned in the book, he is Nubian and 
Nubia is this area along the Nile River where black people were referred to as blue, meaning the original, which one of my favourite artists, Glenn Ligon, talks about. And I thought that was super interesting because this idea that Doro is from these original people that relies on instinct and he is super sharp without having telepathic powers, yet he's overtaken by this operator Mary, I thought was completely fascinating and a very, very brave thing for Octavia Butler to put forward. Mm. She has strong female characters in everything. So we we get the 1950s and shitty sci-fi, according to Octavia Butler and Grace Woodcock. And then we get the 60s and the end of the 60s is the American moon landing and this cultural optimism about the new future, almost like a utopian outlook with sci-fi. And that's where your work comes in, because you've got this exhibition at the moment at Caster, and it's called Gut Brain, and we'll get into the title in a minute. But I just wanted to talk to you about that idea of the sort of Jetsons, Barbarella, you know, sexy optimism of sci-fi that seems to be encapsulated in your exhibition. Yes, I think that there's something amazing in an idea of the retrofuturism. In the 60s, you could be so excited about the future, and now we can't. So that future was kind of taken away from my generation. It was never like a possible outlook, and all future films have a very dystopian edge now. That's not to say that the 60s sci-fi films weren't also dystopian sometimes, but Barbarella as a case study is so optimistic and they live in this planet with no turmoil, no war. Everyone's placid the whole time and Barbarella is sent into space to like fix this. But it turns out, I mean, they're not really living either. They've got pills for sex. They take these pills and then they just hold their hands out and join their hands and they have a kind of response to it. It turns out that they're not really pushing the limits of what it is to be human at all. They're like completely pacified, which I'm not saying is a good thing. But there is like a very naive happiness to Barbarella, which I think is really lovely. And Barbarella is really interesting because of the kind of curvaceous forms of everything in the set. So it's not the kind of cold, harsh future where everything is metal and kind of cold and hard, like the laptops that we use now. It's like they're so unfeeling. All the technology moves to this way instead of being designed around the body. And the 1960s space age culture, the way that the space race completely took on in the imagination of everyone and different chairs were designed and the new materials like plastic manufacturing just took on everything and the kind of dream of a pod life. I don't know, there's um, something really lovely about all of the space age design and I kind of love how in that era life imitated art but also art imitated life. So there was like a really nice feedback between the sci-fi and the real life. So the NASA spaceship only looked the way that it looked because they needed to have popular funding and they needed to have the kind of kudos from everybody that loved all the ideas of a spaceship. So all the films influenced how that looked. 
No way. That's amazing. It's amazing. And we wouldn't have sliding doors unless they'd been in Star Trek. So many incredible things. Or there's an amazing documentary on the moon suit where when they were designing the first spacesuit, they let out the contract to a bunch of different mechanical companies to pitch in and none of them worked. They were all really clunky and they didn't have good support for the body. And then they got Playtex, the bra company, to do one. And they were the only company that had any experience of the support for a human form. And so they ended up working on the spacesuit, designing amazing contraptions that they were making to hold the body in a kind of anti-gravity way. Oh, I think that's fabulous. Do you want to talk about that in the context of the shapes of your work? Because the work in gut brain is much more around the body. So for instance, those seats called device in the service of life, they seem like they're shaped around your butt. I definitely wanted them to be around the butt. In fact, because I designed them on the computer, kind of measuring up my kitchen chair and working out like how big the middle bit needed to be. And uh, I got it completely wrong and I got them cut and they were absolutely huge. Besides that, like probably never fitting out of my studio if I had made it that size. It just didn't do the right thing when you looked at it. So the idea that I want you to look at something and kind of understand what bit of the body it's for. To say that about a seat is quite funny because obviously like not everyone is the same size, but the way that the seat is made up of the different layers and there's quite a thin height difference and it's all foam. So like your body can kind of take up as much or as little space as possible, but there's something in the way that we look at different objects and you can understand them in relation to your body. Like even in painting, some marks are really satisfying because you can kind of see like different arc marks in relation to your body. The different shapes that I do, I imagine how big I want them to be in the kind of form. And I kind of measure the air for how I've thought about it. And then I'll design it off those proportions. But sometimes I make them and then they're not right. I don't have any response to the shape. So that piece doesn't go in. I'm quite sure I read somewhere in the book about objects having memories. Yes. So in the book, there's this character, Jan. She's not an incredibly strong telepath, but she is the one that goes on to become an artist. And her art is putting memories and histories into objects so that when people touch them, they will live the experience that she's decided. So she can touch anything and she can see the history of everyone that's ever come into contact with that object. But then she worked out that she could edit that history and take away all of the noise of the people that didn't matter that touched it. So she like curates all of these different objects to be the learning blocks for their society. There's a Japanese culture, which I could be completely wrong about this, but I think I learned it through watching The Man in the High Castle. And it was in relation to an antique store. And they believed that you could feel the weight of that history through the object. I guess it's also the same thing that makes like relics important in religion, right? So the idea that you can kind of sense the preciousness of something and its history There's also the book, The Collector Collector, which is the story of a bowl. And the bowl is collected by all these collectors. But because the story is told from the perspective of the bowl, 
the bowl collects collectors. Do you understand what I mean? I've forgotten who wrote that, but I'll put it in the notes. Yeah, that's so interesting. The idea of like a material preciousness is something that I am really interested in. I mean, all work that's made is precious in its own way, but like, I mean, I do make everything from scratch, so I'm not drawing in any materials that have importance in that way. But there was a guy called Wilhelm Reich who had an orgone theory and he was put in prison by the FDA because his theories were outside normal medicine and he thought he could cure like anything from mental illness to cancer with the kind of layering of material. This is a very basic version of his theory, but um, he thought that by layering inorganic and organic material in either a pyramid or in a box that you could go into, then you could draw out the negative energy of an environment. And now with crystals being such a popular part of culture, that if you Google the orgone crystal, there's loads of people that are like making kits or whatever, where they have these like small pyramids where it's casting resin with like different layers of material to see if that can draw out the negative effects of an environment. And that was what inspired the kind of materials that I hide or like subvert my work with. So I put a lot of medicinal or potentially medicinal elements in between the contours of my work. So speaking of that, going back to the seats as an example, because it's very easy to visualise seats. So the seating has all this padding and it's a suede material. What is TPU? Thermoplastic polyurethane. Right. So TPU is the cover that's on them? Yes, that's the plasticky skin that's over the top of the suede. Yeah. So I'm just going to read out the materials for that. Suede, TPU, upholstery foam, power mesh, cord, neodymium magnets, copper acupuncture needles, silicon, stainless steel bolts, pro and prebiotic powder, and zinc oxide. Now, when you see a seat, you can't see all that. So do you want to talk about those materials that are hidden within the sculpture? Because they are across cynodaria and bolus and they are across other elements. Yeah, this work is about the gut as the original brain and the gut as this like thinking entity that influences our brain. But the gut has its own nervous system, but it's a very simple version of a nervous system and it can't store memories. So it more controls actions and it kind of feeds a response that we can then think about. So it's why when you go into a certain situation that maybe you've been in before, maybe something anxiety inducing, your body might physically respond to something before you've had a time to mentally like think that through and work out what it is, because your body can more quickly be like, we've been here before. And The gut has its own nervous system in it and it's still connected to the different body parts, but obviously it's also maintained by the brain. But as we have evolved as a species, the gut was potentially the first brain before we were really like conscious creatures. So what we originally existed as some sort of microorganism that was largely some sort of feeding system. 
Yeah, so Cynodaria, that title, that is a type of life form which is basically a floating nerve mesh or a floating digestive system, like a jellyfish. So it's a kind of sac-like creature that is not conscious, but it does have a gut. Or a sea urchin. Sea urchins are amazing. They do this thing where they have a gut and a brain, very simple versions of both. And they can kind of sense water temperature, current, and how much food is in the water. When they are born, they kind of travel along in the current and they will find a rock that is good and it has all the stuff that they need. And once they've set up their home, they eat their brain. It's the first thing they do when they've made their home. They eat their brain because they don't need it. The brain was just for movement and the gut can do everything else. And then they just exist as this digestive system on a rock. This idea that the brain is really only for movement in more simple creatures. So the gut is actually responsible for a lot more than we give it credit. And the materials that I use to kind of hijack in between the layers are a bit of an ode to the Reikian crystal pseudoscience that I am interested in and kind of sceptical about. So in this show, I've put pro and prebiotic capsules, which is something that I've been suggested that I should try and use for. I'm allergic to so many different foods. And pro and prebiotics actually didn't really help that much, but I like them being in the work. Spirulina is another thing that is supposed to be really good for gut health and general nutrient level. And that's in them as well. And zinc oxide, something that's like good for everything, but especially the gut. I was casting those powders in drips of silicon so that they would be kind of fossilized in them. And then I could put them between the layers of the sculpture. I'm not sure if it's new evidence, but there are definitely new studies around gut health and that the state of the gut can affect your mental well-being. So, for instance, with depression. So the brain feeds into what the gut does, but now there's an idea that this is a reciprocal relationship. The gut also feeds back to the brain. Yeah, completely. I guess if you're kind of governed by instinct generally, a lot of those feelings that you can't fully form do come from the body. Well, I think so, but that could be argued. What do you mean, like a gut feeling? Yeah, like a gut feeling. I like to go with them and do the things that just feel right. I want my body to relate to the work that I make in a way that it feels right. It feels how I wanted it to feel rather than look necessarily. The gut is incredible and it's kind of like the deep sea. They don't know that much about it. More than half of the cells in our body with the nucleus are not human cells. They're microbial or bacterial and they are found in the gut. There's human cells like bone cells and skin cells and all of those kind of cells with a nucleus that would be human. They like make up an eye or a different organ or whatever. And then there's other bacteria that you would also find like around the home, but they're not a human cell and they're still within the body. And the huge percentage of them is found in the gut. And the gut microbiome has its own DNA. And some of the DNA strands of the microbiome influence our personality and our traits more than our human DNA in the body. 
I think it's fascinating that there's not that much that's known and that when we take antibiotics you're killing off a lot of the good bacteria which is something that we've always known but a lot of that good bacteria is in the gut they think that they could treat a lot of illnesses by affecting the microbiome instead but from when I wasn't sure what it was that I was allergic to or what was causing the like gut problems that I was having, they couldn't take out your gut bacteria and look at them. They denatured as soon as they were in the air. They hadn't found a way of examining what was inside the gut, outside the gut, to really experiment on it. So that makes me think of Mary's ability, actually, with her pattern you were talking about this idea of a sort of thread and a golden thread and there was something around this idea of an open DNA system but also of a spider web because she is feeding off these people as much as she is giving them life, a better life. Yeah, she was feeding off them and she was also dipping into their consciousness, learning all of their experiences and then learning from them and kind of replicating each of their skills that they had. So there's like one of the telepaths has a healing power and she can kind of scan the bodies of those that she touches and see where problems are and stem growth or cause harm as she wishes. And that's something that Mary learns through a kind of prosthetic connection to the healer's mind. And that was also like an amazing image in the book. Octavia Butler discusses that really beautifully. So just moving back to your work, SPH1 and SPH2 are two wall-mounted... Okay, I'm going to use my description, probably not how you see them, but I thought of them like ear meets conch shell, and they are oval-ish, and their centres recess through staggered padding. And in the exhibition, they are on opposite walls. So I found that really interesting, not only to stand between the two and think of them as devices, as extensions of a body in some way that is also furnishing. But if I think of them as something like ears, I thought of them as opposing ears as much as left and right. Do you want to talk a bit about what those pieces are about and what SPH stands for? Okay, um, SPH stands for sphincter, but I didn't want it to be too literal or to close up any discussion. So within the gastrointestinal system, there's three pairs of sphincters and they're always in pairs and one of them is conscious and the other one is unconscious. And there's a kind of testing ground between them so the unconscious sphincter they're rings of muscle which can contract and relax and the body will just let material through the unconscious sphincter by it relaxing and then your body kind of works out what that material is and like as per the situation whether or not to let anything pass through the conscious sphincter There's one set in the mouth, one set in the stomach and one set in your bum. And yeah, and this idea of a kind of conscious and an unconscious part of the body working together and this testing ground in between was why I wanted the whole show to be the kind of testing ground. And they've got kind of kinks in them. As I drew out the forms on the inside, I wanted them to feel like a certain muscle contraction. So I was being really careful with the kind of angles that those 
lines hit and how they all flow as a set of lines and how that feels as it goes in. And you're right, they are really ear-like, which is something that um, comes up again and again and again in the work. But I wanted them to feel like muscle contractions, basically, and I did really want them to be in a dialogue with each other across the room. We were supposed to meet at the gallery to see the show together. And unfortunately, I had a bit of a COVID scare. So I went and got tested and I was waiting for a result. So I couldn't actually come with you. And we FaceTimed so that you could show me all the work and then I could ask you questions and then you sent me a film. And all of that worked visually and I could sort of imagine being in the room and I could imagine what the objects felt like and what they might be like to touch, not that I would touch them. And then my COVID test was negative, so that was fine. I went to the exhibition and I was just so pleased because, of course, I couldn't imagine at all what it would be like through any kind of visual representation. Because as soon as I walked in, all the walls are yellow and it's a bit like walking into the lower part of a sunken lounge. Aside from the fact that all that yellow creates a sort of visual haze that affects your eyesight, there was also the smell in the room. I am not sure what the smell is. I think it must be the paint. I'm not sure you'd think about the smell if the walls were white, if it didn't have the installation, maybe. I'm not sure if the smell would be such a trigger but I think it's because the paint does create this weird haze it's so glowy and it's quite hard to focus on and cameras really can't capture that color I picked it because I thought it was it had an a very like acidic-y undertone like a kind of stomach acid but it wasn't horrible it was like slightly jarring but it's not disgusting which is how I wanted it to be. Like, I want it to be bodily, but I wanted the whole effect of the room to feel really close, like atmospherically close, but I didn't want it to be, like, horrible or disturbing. Kind of wanted it in harmony, but kind of slightly unsettled. So it's an inside body tactile response to being in that room that I was after. And I wanted the 60s sunken living room-esque shape One, because it does to the room a simple version of my work. So the work is imitating the room as well. But also because those sunken pits were designed as conversation pits. And I was thinking about the gut as this surveillance system for the body. And I wanted those sphincter pieces, SPH1 and 2, to be in a dialogue with each other. And I wanted it to feel kind of... I guess like a kind of generative synergy between them all, even though they're really spread out as well, which I think aids to how kind of floating. And there's no windows, so the gallery lighting's quite intense and the whole room is very, very bright. It's like a daylight room, almost like the Truman Show, where there's no no end between the floor (laughs) and the walls. Yeah, that's right. So it becomes like a, almost like a photographic studio And now I'm thinking of it as a stage. I mean, it's built like a stage. Though all the sculptures are appropriately and responsibly socially distanced from one another. Even the seats, one of the seats has two spaces on it, but they both face one direction rather than facing each other. So that's kind of socially distanced. When you go into the room, because of the strange smell, because of the strange colour, 
I'm really, really not sure where I am, whether I'm in a laboratory, whether I'm in somewhere that is like a safe room with these padded objects. Did you preempt the exhibition with a sense of where you wanted people to feel that they were located or that you wanted people to feel that they were dislocated? I think I like the dislocation, but I think that it is... um... It's a space that you can relate to completely outside of a context. Because it is all curved, all of the shapes in the room are very like soft curves as other than the actual corners of the room. There's no hard right angles anywhere. And then even the, the paint colour kind of hazes over the corners of the room and you kind of lose the distinction on that. So it feels very kind of lost in space. But I kind of like treading the line between something that is comfortable and clinical. But like they're bodily, but they're not anatomical. I want the work to relate to the body, but not in a way that you can be like, oh, that's this part of the body. And ear-like forms are the one that comes through again and again. But like if you had a picture of an ear and the work, they're not that similar. Yeah, I would agree. But they do, they call to mind body parts. And I think that's the kind of area that I'm interested in. And my work before this was all wearable, but I wanted them to feel bodily when you looked at them. But they were like both for the body and of the body in a kind of prosthetic way. That sort of sense of different places located in the installation, as well as different places, the external part of the body meets furniture, meets the internal part of the body, that sort of hybrid approach brings us really nicely into some of your influences. And you were talking to me about Annika Yee, and she uses combinations of things like fragrance and food and science and does collaborations with biologists and chemists and also thinking about Paqui hardware they're also looking at hybrids or this idea of hybrid is essential to their work and I know you've spoken to me about other influences like Diane Simpson and Itayoda, Paloma Proudfoot, Celia Apparicio, I'm not sure how to say that name, Hannah Levy and Raphael Zyko. But I just wanted to concentrate maybe on one or two. Do you want to talk a bit about your artistic influences and who you're looking at? Yeah, so I think I try not to look too much at other artworks when I'm thinking about what I'm making, but Pakwi Hardware are incredible when they talk about their works. They're a duo from Lithuania. And they've, they had a show at Tender Pixel in London that was kind of about the metabolism. And it was very like internal body structures, but they are a kind of deep future, I would say. And they're very hybrid between extracorporeal. So they're imagining a kind of future where machines and the body are one, a kind of transhumanist future. They have a really, really interesting material sensibility, but the work doesn't feel human as we are now. And then I would say Anika Yee is just so incredible. Her studio is huge and she has lots of scientists and people on call and she works with designers and perfumers across such a wide range of things. But she's interested in machine future 
and the kind of biologized machine and how I think the way that humans always think that would be like the ideal way to think is just completely conscious thought. And people like to think that we think like a computer, but we have bodies that are sensing and thinking as well. And they work together. And that's the kind of thing that the machines are missing. So Anarchy Yee's whole practice is often about imagining a more organic thinking for a machine. She's so intelligent. When I saw the show, I did think of Ernesto Neto and I wondered what your work represented as sort of the next generation, if you like, because, and this is my own projection, of course, in the work Software for Feeling, there's two pieces that are interconnected and they have some sort of stretched fabric in between the two halves that connects them. And that had me thinking about Ernesto Neto, for instance. And then Cynodaria 1 and 2 had these very sharp perspex pieces, almost like teeth. And the perspex part, because it was that sort of smoky brown, reminded me of some of the sculptures of Alison Wilding. And you're a recently graduated artist. When did you graduate? Last year. So you're coming from a very different generation. And it did make me think of how people like Alison Wilding and Ernesto Neto, they have much more of a singularity about their work. And I was trying to work out the distinction with you as somebody who is the next generation. And it does seem to lie in this idea of the hybrid sculpture and the multifaceted art practice. They're both two incredible people to be compared with. So Ernesto Neto's work is incredible. It's so sensorial and he deals a lot with scent and his installations are so for the body and you can really interact with them so I think that his one thing that he does is very expansive whereas what I'm doing I'm not exactly sure where it's going to go is research-led and I'm not necessarily going to stay researching the gut but the work's both research-led and it's kind of self-generative so like every piece I work out how to make it kind of gives me a new idea where I'm like ah if I can make that one, then I could change it a bit and then this form would be possible. Whereas because it's new and because I'm using software in a kind of awkward way. If I was making this work in clay, I could make these shapes way easier, but they wouldn't do the same thing. And I kind of really enjoy the puzzle that I make for myself while I'm building them and imagining how to design something that can be reconstructed in real life once it's off the computer. I think the hybrid is so important to what I'm doing because it is a combination of the research with the physical thing. So, Grace, this exhibition, Gut Brain, at Caster Gallery, in their beautiful new space, finishes on the 31st of October. Do you have any exhibitions lined up after this? Or are you going to go back into research? I'm going back into research. So I'm collaborating with a friend on a sound piece for this show. Obviously, the rule of six and everything is making it a bit difficult for thinking about how to show that because I don't want it to be a sound piece that runs the whole time. I kind of want it to be more an event where it's really considered almost as its own thing alongside the work. I'm also planning a kind of curatorial project. It's in its very early stages, but it's something that I'm really excited about. Great. So still lots of experimenting and 
research going ahead. Tell me, what are you reading now? Have you got any books on the go or are you too busy holidaying? I have bought with me but have not opened since I've been here. Future Nostalgia by Svetlana Barenboim. <laughs> that sounds like a perfect connection to your exhibition. Yes, she kind of deals with a idea that you can be nostalgic for something that you never had in the first place. I'm excited to read that, but it's, it's a heavy tomb. And then I think I'll go back to Parable of the Sower. The main character in that book experiences other people's emotions as though they're her own, this kind of synesthetic connection to other people's experiences. But it's a very dystopian setup at the beginning of lockdown when I was reading Brave New World and 24-7 and Capitalist Realism, I was like, this is too much. What am I doing? Yeah, it got a bit heavy. I think I'll finish 24-7 though. That's the book about the capitalist take on sleep because my work before Gut Brain was all stemmed from this idea of fictional future where we couldn't sleep without support. So they were all kind of rests for a cheek on the wall or a headwear dome that would calm or um, different kind of structural supports as though you needed the help for sleep as the end goal. Well, this idea of not being able to sleep naturally, this idea of like needing apparatus to sleep is a terrifying thought. Yeah, not a great future. So there's these swallows. I think it's a swallow, type of swallow. But when it migrates, it migrates for a whole week and it doesn't need to sleep through that week. They just can keep going at full mental capacity. And so scientists have done so much research on these birds to find out what it is that suppresses the need for sleep. Because it's not like, well, in the army or in anything where people have needed to not sleep, they've always taken an upper to stop your ability to sleep so you are just kept awake so the mental function goes like really downhill and you get really jittery or whatever but these birds point to like a way that you could reduce the actual need for sleep which then if you didn't need sleep then your brain wouldn't be at a reduced function so they're doing this to try and make like an army of people that don't need sleep And then if you think about that and then you're like, what about like Amazon and factory workers? And if they didn't need sleep and they could work forever, it's terrifying. Where we're expected to work all hours of the day and be like really, really productive all the time. Yeah, it's a scary future. That is scary. However, all good things must come to an end. Grace Woodcock, thank you very much for being on Art Fictions today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review. And of course, you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gilliannight.co.uk. Across these, you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. So where are you going today? I'm not sure what's on the agenda today. The weather doesn't look too horrible, so probably a walk. That'd be really nice. Where are you staying in Cornwall? We're in Morgan Porth, but um, we went to St Ives yesterday, and that was really nice. Have you got any favourite places down here? 
I haven't really explored it massively there, but the light is beautiful. And I've surfed in, um, actually I think it's more North Devon. 